Hello, everybody, and welcome to Great Bible Reset. This is Oliver Woods, and we're starting today a series exploring what I call a, a biblical reset of history based on an analysis of the classical literature. Now, that's kind of a mouthful. What does that mean, and why is this important? Well, the one thing that Klaus Schwab fears, the only thing that can derail the great economic reset is the great Bible reset. The classical authors, some are Christian, some are non-Christian, are like super influencers who have shaped the course of Western civilization for better or worse. And our thesis is it's mostly been worse because their fatal tendency to replace Bible law with so-called natural law. So we're going to be unpacking that over a long period of time. We're all very concerned about the disintegration of American culture, this looming great reset, the build back better, 15-minute cities, more lockdowns, more bioweapon vaccines. So we're on pins and needles about terrible changes that may be coming in the near future concerning digital currency, controls that come with the cashless society, hyperinflation, the devastation that that can cause. And now we've got Elon Musk and others warning us about the threat of artificial intelligence after all of its great promise, and even the possibility that one of these AI platforms has already been turned loose with the mission of finding the best way to end human civilization. So some might say, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> but it's scary. You know, all this stuff is cascading down and asked what to do. Elon says, I don't know. This is a bigger threat than nuclear war. And of course, you know, Elon knows everything. Alan Savory, a, um, an African champion of restorative, holistic agriculture, claims that more than 20 civilizations in all regions of the world have failed because of agriculture damaging the environment, namely destroying soil microbes by overtillage, leading to nutrient-deficient plants and massive erosion. Will we be number 21 for abusing our soil? What are we going to do? How do we stop this? You know, these are fears that haunt our minds. So what we're setting forth in this series is that there's only one thing that will solve our problem, and that is a cultural reformation or a great reset in terms of the law of God. It's the one thing that God demands of us and promises blessing for obedience. We see this throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible. We've got to stop being embarrassed about the law of God. We see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And I'll, I'll give you one example. For example, in um, 2 Kings 23.2, we have the uh, Reformation of King Josiah. And it summarizes the, the covenant that Josiah made like this. It says, The king stood by the pillar of the temple and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. And the people stood to the covenant. Now, notice what it did not say. It did not say the king stood by the pillar to get back to the original intent of the U.S. Constitution, obviously. But we tend to equate the two. We tend to equate the U.S. Constitution and the law of God. And this is all part of our pluralistic civil religion. Do we see anything like 2 Kings 23.2 in the U.S. Constitution? The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord? We don't. But uh, we did in most of the 13 original colonies, the charters that, um, on which they were established. A big part of our problem is that Americans and American Christians in particular think of ourselves as innocent victims who have somehow been imposed upon by some external international cohort of globalist gangsters. The term conspiracy theory is, is no longer whispered. You know, terms like globalist, new world order, international banksters. 
global elite or common knowledge. We're in a situation like Hezekiah when Sennacherib, King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king with his 185,000 man army, stood at the walls of Jerusalem and scoffed at King Hezekiah for trusting God to deliver him. He said, all of the gods I've come across so far have been child's play. What makes you think your God is going to be any different? Daring God was a big mistake, and that night all 185,000 of uh, Sennacherib's army were wiped out by the angel of the Lord. And I think we're into this so deep that only God can save us. The problem is we've adopted the attitude that something that is rightfully ours has been unlawfully stolen through no fault of our own. We're just innocent victims of what's happening in America today. We're the exceptional ones. The world is envious of us. Opinion polls around the world deny this. Whenever you ask uh, uh, opinion polls in other countries, what's the greatest threat to world peace today? They almost inevitably will answer the United States of America. So we, we need to get out of this innocent victim complex. When the prophet Daniel was giving his great prayer in uh, chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, uh, over the destruction of Jerusalem, and near the closing of the um, 70 years captivity, uh, he said, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, then the man Gabriel appeared to me and explained what was going on. But we've got too much of the attitude, you know, if they come to my door, it's going to be the last door they ever knock on. When David sinned in the Hebrew Republic, God judged the people. When David wanted to uh, number the people for purposes of military mobilization for empire, David sinned, but God judged the people for not restraining David, their leader. And that's where, basically where we're at today. What is God's great controversy with America? This should be on everyone's lips. The globalists are the Nebuchadnezzar that God has brought upon us. We think if we can just get enough people informed and mobilized, then everything will be okay. In the book of Thessalonians, Paul praises the Thessalonians for the way in which they turn to God from idols. But when we look at the, the book of Jeremiah, the first few chapters, we see just the opposite. We see, we see kind of a, a deconstruction of that, ref, that um, repentance. Uh, for example, in chapter 1, Jeremiah says, God says, they have forsaken me and offered sacrifices to other gods. They have worshipped the works of their own hands. And then in chapter 2, it puts that in, form of, in the form of a, um, a picture or, or a metaphor. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And, uh, you know, I was in a, uh, a big hotel in the Philippines several years ago. Really fancy hotel. I think it's one owned by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio or one of those guys. And in the middle of this hotel, they've got a huge fountain. It's like at least an acre, maybe two acres. And down the middle, they've got a set of um, water cannons set up under the water, but in a straight line. And in the summer evenings, I think it's every hour on the hour, They'll have a, a, a water show, and, uh, you know, it's all computer synchronized and everything, and uh, these, these water cannons will shoot the water, you know, 100 feet in the air, and there's, there's lights playing on the water and, and music and so forth, and it's, um, it's quite, a, uh, quite a show. Um, 
But it reminded me of this verse, you know, that God is the fountain of living waters, a glorious, uh, a very glorious um, thing, you know. Um, but we've traded that in uh, for cisterns, our own cisterns, and not only cisterns, but broken cisterns that can hold no water. And in, in um, chapter 2, verse 19, God says, the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord. You know, not just the fear of me, but the dread of me is not in you. In other words, there's, there's no humility under chastisement. And so Jeremiah accused them of shedding the lifeblood of the innocent poor, uh, chapter 2, verse 34, of adultery, harlotry, chapter 5, verse 7, not pleading the cause of widows, orphans, and a stranger, chapter 5, verse 29, property taxes that force widows out of their homes. But then he says, and this is interesting, in chapter 5, the first verse and the last verse of five, uh, chapter 5 are very uh, significant, I think. In, in verse 1, he says, if there is one who does justice, one who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. Justice based upon God's truth, then I will pardon her. So, you know, are there enough of us who will take God seriously that, you know, relatively speaking, one who will cause him to turn from his wrath and pardon us? And not just rule of law, but whose law? God's law. A great Bible reset. And then in the last verse, it says, um, of chapter 5, verse 31, it says, the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. We've, we've forsaken God's truth, and we need a great Bible reset. But you might say that, well, that was Old Testament. Haven't things changed in the New Testament? Well, I can remember a time when I was, you know, I was really confused, you know, reading through the New Testament about its attitude toward the law of God. Because there's a set of verses that say that are that are are negative toward the law of God. You'll say we are not under the law, but under grace, for example. And on the other hand, we see verses that are are the opposite. Uh, there's a verse in Romans seven that says the law is holy and just and good. So which is it? You know. So I decided to do a topical Bible study. You know, try to get to the bottom of this. And um, this was before the days of the computer. So I sat down with a piece of paper and a pencil and made two lists, one list of um, the negative verses, negative attitude toward the law, and the other with the positive attitude toward the law. And um, you can do this one of two ways. You can either go to your, um, uh, your concordance and do it, or you can actually go through the Bible. And I said, well, I want to see this in context. So I started reading or scanning through the New Testament and making this list, positive, negative, positive attitudes toward the law, negative verses towards the law. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't get too far probably halfway through, and I started to get the picture. The, um, the negative verses towards the law relate to the, the ceremonial laws that have been fulfilled in the death of Christ. And the positive verses that express a positive attitude toward the law are related to the case law illustrations that, that remain in, in, uh, in effect. And so that's, I think, how the uh, New Testament interacts uh, with the Old Testament law. So we'll start our review of classical authors near the middle, at about the year 1000, at a point usually referred to as the High Middle Ages. And it's, it's an era of transition that set the stage for the modern era, and in fact defines the modern era in ways that we don't even realize. So we'll take a week for each of our classical authors, which means that this journey could extend for 100 weeks.
Lord willing, a, a, a full two years. There'll be four lessons each week, Tuesday through Friday, and we'll try to mix it up a little bit every week, um, you know, with some interviews, uh, perhaps some book reviews, perhaps some movie reviews, and stuff like that. Um, but just to summarize the historical context for St. Anselm, who is our first classical author, um, I like to think of the ancient world in terms of a series of pods, uh, all starting with the letter P, five pods, each pod having three Ps, three representative characters that illustrate that particular pod. So we look at the pagan world. We have Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Following that, we have the Prince of Peace, which includes, of course, Jesus, and then Plutarch, Plutarch's lives, and Plotinus, the Neoplatonist, all in the Prince of Peace era, followed by the Patristic era, which includes Constantine, St. Augustine, and Justinian. Then what I call the Patriotic era of Charlemagne, Alfred, and um, St. Boniface, the missionary to Germany. And we call, I call that the Patriotic era because there's a number of epic poems that kind of set the stage for the, the nation states, which are going to be emerging in, um, after the year 1000. Uh, things like the Arthur, the Arthur legends, uh, Beowulf, the Song of Roland, poems like that. And then finally, the papal era, which includes uh, St. Anselm, John of Salisbury, who was known as the father of political science, and Thomas Aquinas. And then that moves us into the modern era, which is a series of R's, the first R being the Renaissance, Renaissance of William Wallace, William of Ockham, Petrarch, and a few others. But we'll get into that in more detail tomorrow.